Five minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to a Metro FM talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our SMME exchange, and uh, we have this slot every Tuesday where we take a look at uh, all the happenings in the small business ecosystem. And uh, this evening, uh, we're reflecting on something the president said yesterday. Now, uh, in his weekly letter, which comes out every Monday morning, uh, he sometimes reflects, I guess, and uh, maybe allows us into his own mind space and uh, some of the things that he's thinking about. And uh, this time around, he has urged young people and one would assume in the context of what we saw with the quarterly labor force survey numbers, what we saw with the uh, you know, uh, uh, rapid survey that was uh, uh, you know, put together by the folks at NIDS, the National Income Dynamics Survey, uh, all of those painting the same picture, you know, indicating that if you're young, if you're black, if you're a female, uh, you certainly find yourself uh, in a very tight and a difficult situation in South Africa when it comes to your prospects of finding employment or even being able to participate in the labor market. And so what happens? I mean, uh, if, if you can't participate in the labor market, you can't earn a wage, uh, that certainly has massive limitations and uh, implications for your ability to eke out a livelihood. And uh, I guess uh, the president in response and uh, responding to this um, certainly spoke of uh, necessity as the mother of invention and uh, suggesting that uh, there is a silver lining to uh, the uh, COVID-19 cloud. And uh, one of those includes, I guess, uh, the opportunities and the possibilities uh, to undertake um, self-employment uh, as part of a broader task uh, or a broader, a broader undertaking uh, that is aimed at e uh, fostering some sense of economic self-reliance. Now, well, he went on to say that uh, a combination of foresight, creativity, and business acumen had led many young South Africans to come up with their own homegrown solutions uh, to many of the contemporary challenges that we face. And uh, in some cases, uh, we certainly hope that uh, that uh, inventive mood and attitude uh, has come with uh, some uh, uh, potential for opportunities for employment. Now, the big question we're asking this evening in this segment is whether or not self-employment uh, in our current context with uh, what we have by way of regulation, our market structure, the configuration of space in many of our townships and uh, in our rural areas, uh, is self-employment possible in South Africa? Or are the um, challenges stacked against young people considering this route so seemingly insurmountable uh, that we might not be able to even think of a way out? I'm joined on the line to speak about this by the uh, director at an organization that certainly has done an extensive amount of work here. That's uh, the Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation. And uh, uh, Leif Peterson joins me now on the line. Leif, good evening to you, and thank you very much for joining us. Hi, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Leif, I want us maybe to start off here, and uh, it's certainly not the first time we're talking to you here on uh, Metro FM Talk, and uh, some of our listeners uh, might be familiar and might not be familiar with some of the work that your organization does. And I guess that's a good starting point before we get into uh, some of the possibilities or limitations of self-employment in South Africa. What do you guys do? Yeah, sure. So Sustainable Livelihood Foundation um, does numerous things. But one of our core areas of interest is around township uh, economy, and in, in particular looking at economic and, and social kind of um, beneficiation for people who live within the township sector. Um, and we're very interested in particular about how do you grow opportunities for people who live within within the township, um, particularly looking at the context of the township being such a you know, commonly a geographically and economically dislocated 
displace from um, from the city and from the main structures of the economy. So over the course of the last decade, we've worked in many uh, township contexts all over South Africa and particularly interested in township business. So over the, we've looked particularly, we've interviewed more than 13,000 township microenterprises to try and understand some of the major market challenges they face and some of the entrepreneurship that they do. So, so I mean, Liv, just in that context, uh, I, I took a look earlier on at uh, some of the case studies you guys had put together, uh, and I found one quite interesting, and I, and I want us to maybe use this uh, as a flashpoint to answer some of the questions I was trying to foreground in the introduction, uh, and that's the informal food services sector in uh, uh, South Africa's townships, and uh, you guys took a look at uh, what was happening in Filipi, Sweet Home Farm, Nyanga, and uh, Masipumelele. Uh, some of the townships in uh, Cape Town, there in the Western Cape, um, and maybe let's let's start with I uh, just your assessment firstly of how this particular uh, uh, you know uh, uh, food services industry has emerged and what distinguishes it maybe uh, from the more mainstream food uh, services industries which we know are also making a foray into the same townships. Sure, the, the the informal food economy of food service economy is a particularly interesting one. If you look at the the dynamics, for example, um, more than seventy percent of the people who operate within the sector running the businesses are women with dependent children, and if you look at the incomes those women make, um, they generally make as much, if not more, than they would if they had a job as as a kind of a minimum wage person in the services or the retail sector within the city. And also, when they're running a business in a township context, people are working close to home, which means that during the course of the day, they can look after children, which means they're not incurring transport costs, they're not incurring childcare costs, and they're able to run the business at a time and a place that suits them and suits their lives. Um, yet, we have a, a, a context in South Africa where, despite the fact that these businesses are doing a, a very important service for the families and, and for, for those women entrepreneurs themselves, we have a regulatory framework that's totally inappropriate to their development. So municipalities tend to look at informal street trade businesses on the side of the road uh, as, as more of a nuisance than an opportunity. Uh, they're not provided with the infrastructure or the facilities that's required to enable them to run their businesses in a more efficient or a more kind of, a, uh, you know, with rubbish bins or in a cleaner way or in a more hygienic mm. way because there literally isn't the facilities there. Yet we have municipalities that are so very keen to um, you know, support formal sector businesses and shopping malls. And so you've got you know, high street brand fast food joints opening up all over the place, literally on the fringes of townships. But at the same time, we see no state support whatsoever for the businesses that, that actually operate on the ground. And I think one of the fundamental cultural differences we see, um, well, fundamental differences we see between um, the township Kind of informal food service businesses and, and, the, and the kind of the formal sector is that the businesses provide very important food in a cultural context for people who eat on the run, commonly on the way to work or on the way from work. Um, and, they, and, and they offer food in portions and, and in the kind of types of foods that, that make sense to consumers' budgets and mm -hmm. make sense mm -hmm. to people's preferences and tastes. So it's quite strange that we live in a country where, despite the fact that we have these entrepreneurs, we have no state process of really engaging with them or trying to support them. Yet they're entrepreneurs and they're doing the very thing that, that our president is trying to encourage people to do. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a look quickly. And of course, we'll come back to some of the questions on regulation and uh, sort of enabling policy 
uh, and uh, that kind of all of the environmental factors. But let's talk just briefly about some of the market structure relationships here. Um, people often say and think about the informal sector as a distinct entity to formal sector value chains. But if um, if we go upstream for a second and we think about where many informal players are sourcing the you know, chicken feet, uh, sheep's heads, and everything else we might be talking about uh, that you probably won't find in a formal retailer. Uh, you tend to find that they find it from the same abattoirs in the formal sector value chains and even from the same importers and wholesalers. Uh, absolutely. And, and not only that, but we have a, a, a context where the majority of the women running these businesses um, are not earning the kinds of incomes where they should be paying income tax. So in that context, actually, there's nothing really informal about those businesses at all, except for the fact that they operate on the side of the road and they don't necessarily have a permit to trade. So, so this, is, this is where the real issue lies. And the, the problem isn't really these businesses' informality. The problem is the formal sector's formality. The only reason these businesses are informal is because there is a formal framework that judges them for being so. And I think this is one of the fundamental challenges we face is that we, we're not looking at township entrepreneurship and we're not looking at township entrepreneurs with the right lenses, that we, we tend to judge on the basis of, oh, well, that's not registered or it, isn't, it doesn't mm-hmm. comply with certain standards. But yet we've never really made an effort to try and bring these businesses into the fold because we assume that they're not worth the effort. Yet what we're seeing is very much the opposite. Mm-hmm. Talk to me also about, I guess, the contribution that some of these businesses make in, uh, uh, I guess, fostering more efficiencies within the market. I mean, I, I saw something quite interesting in one of your case studies. You speak about this sort of uh, nose-to-tail phenomenon. What is that? And uh, I guess what role do you see some of these informal sector players um, making in uh, ensuring a more efficient uh, operating environment and even margins for some of the formal players? Absolutely. I think in, the, in, the, in the, the context of the markets we're talking about, people are preparing foods which are consumed by um, uh, uh, consumers who have uh, very, very strict budgets. Um, and we, we, what we're seeing, particularly um, in the consumer behavior within the township context, is um, the majority of people who are buying um, street food are buying more than once, maybe three or four times a week commonly on their way to work or the way from work. So the demand is not for high-level, fancy meals. The demand is for food that is served for people who are going to or from work. So it's served, it's served for people who are literally on the hoof. And what that means is, is that, that the cuts of food that are required, the kinds of meals that are served, are very basic, mm-hmm. um, and they're commonly fairly cheap. And, and this is where the nose-to-tail consumption comes into the market. So... Um, in a context of an abattoir, we talk about the four quarters of an animal when it gets slaughtered. Well, the fifth quarter sure. is the, the kind of the, the different organs, the head, the tail, um, the skin. And, and there's, a, there's a huge market for that um, part of the animal. And it creates a market opportunity within itself. And a lot of the people you see who are doing the street buying are serving the kinds of foods that both speak to the demand, but also speak to people's budgets. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I guess the the other dynamic relates to, um, you know, the possibilities within what the president said. Uh, and maybe that, you know, let's maybe start off there. Um, I guess there's always this assumption that um, self-employment, the informal sector, will from time to time play this mop-up role. 
uh, in times of, you know, uh, where the business cycle is either in a depressed condition uh, and, and uh, many people are, are in what would call, be called cyclical unemployment. So you're unemployed because of where the business cycle is rather than maybe what uh, uh, accounts for the unemployment in this country, which is by all accounts very structural. Uh, what's your sense about that kind of theorization, because I do think that a lot of what the president was suggesting comes from that view that says there aren't jobs in the formal sector, there isn't enough labor demand there. Young people are considering self-employment and that might potentially be a way out. Look, I think that the, the president's call for self-employment is a very positive one and I think it's something that should be embraced. But I do think that we in this country, particularly in the state, need to move past the discussion and we need to become sure. more grounded in the reality. And I, there's no point in training people or encouraging people to become entrepreneurs if there's no market for the products that they create or the products that they sell. And this is where we have a real issue. So if we look, for example, um, at within the township context, we have um, thousands of women across the country who are brewing sorghum beer. And this is a traditional mm. beer that is served, you know, at very many ceremonies and commonly consumed, you know, on a weekend as a recreational kind of thing by people who stay within the township context. Yet at yes. the same time, we have no framework to allow those businesses to formalize in any sense whatsoever. Yet, uh, we have in the middle class, we have a massive booming craft beer sector. So, so this is a great example where we have a kind of like a dual system, where one system allows and, and encourages people to, to create craft beer, but the other, the other group of people who do it, who are by far the majority, are condemned for doing the same thing. So I think, you know, if we, could, if we could create the opportunities for people to be legitimate, I think many businesses would. Um, the challenge is, is that we haven't got markets for those businesses. And this takes me to my next point. Um, mm. we, we talked recently about the idea of, of street trade. And one of the big problems with street trade, for particularly in township, uh, for township markets, is that consumers are really stretched for money. And a big argument that we're putting forward, and it's a challenge that I put forward to South African municipalities, is that what should be done is that in our municipalities across the country, all of our urban areas and our towns and our cities, every single suburb, uh, middle-class suburbs, where we have you know, formal kind of you know, regulated homes and middle-class residents, should open up uh, one trading bay for a new informal trader um, in every town, every suburb, across all our kind of metropolitan areas across the country. And I would argue that would create at least 10,000 new trading bays or informal traders, and those mm. trading bays would be in markets where you have consumers who have more money. If we continue to keep condemning informal traders to remain trading in the township context, they're trading in a market where there simply isn't enough rands going around. Sure. And sure. If, we take, if we take the idea further and we look at shopping malls, South Africa has 2,000 shopping malls. If, if government was to put its money where its mouth was and say, okay, we're going to compel all 2,000 shopping malls in this country to have at least five informal traders within their doors, okay, and they can pick and choose which traders they are, those five informal traders would be accessing markets they would not otherwise get. So I think that the president's call is a very good one and a very exciting one, but there's no point in making the call if we don't make markets for people. And in doing that, we have to create market opportunities. And secondly, we have to actually get traders and businesses into the markets where they're able to make money. Let's pause here for a second, Leif, and uh, when we come back, we'll uh, take a look at some of the other uh, considerations uh, from a bylaw enforcement perspective, and even, I guess, the, the zoning of space in the self-same townships that we're talking about. And uh, we'll return to some of these themes 
on the other side of this. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned in to our SMME exchange here on Metro FM Talk. I'm joined by uh, Leif Peterson. He's from the Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation. Uh, they're based out in the Western Cape. And uh, we're talking to him about um, the prospects of self-employment uh, within the current context here in South Africa. And uh, I guess uh, what might some of be uh, some of the constraints or limitations uh, to uh, young people undertaking uh, uh, self-employment, and not only young people, but I guess uh, just across the board, uh, um, the uh, possibilities for self-employment. And uh, Leif, before we went to the break, you were talking uh, about uh, the opportunity to extend uh, 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 you know, the informal sector to uh, markets that ordinarily wouldn't be accessed. But before we get to some of those markets, let's maybe talk about the regulatory environment in some of the townships. Um, uh, you know, you make an interesting point that it seems sometimes there's a symbiotic relationship between uh, uh, informal food services providers and other uh, retailers, uh, some of whom sell alcohol, for instance. Yeah, there is. And, and I think that one of the big challenges we have for the township economy is that we do need to make a major a wholesale look at um, how the township has been designed. And if you think about townships, they were designed during the apartheid era as dormitory suburbs. They were, were places where people were meant to sleep and they were meant to commute into cities, into economic zones to go and work. And what's happened is now our townships have evolved and gotten to such a size and such a scale that they themselves are cities on their own. And, and the mistake that we're making is we're continuing to apply outdated thinking to what are emerging to becoming proper economic centres themselves. And we need to relook really at how our townships work. And we need to look at like, where the high streets lay. We need to look at the residential mm. businesses. And we need to rethink about how the township is structured from a planning and from a legal perspective. Because what we need right now in this country more than anything else is businesses. And we need those businesses to be able to operate and function in an environment where they're not going to get harassed by the police, and where they're able to actually invest in their businesses. And by investing in their businesses, they'll be able to grow. But while you condemn businesses to informality and while you keep them in residential townships, they're going to be unable to do that. And so the first step is to actually change the zoning in the township context to allow people to function and operate businesses in, in, in the appropriate mm. area. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess the, the, this point of regulation and uh, prohibitive bylaw enforcement uh, also plays itself out in, in another sector you guys took a look at, which is, uh, you know, the um, sort of... Uh, property development and uh, rental accommodation units uh, in uh, the South uh, Delft area in the Western Cape that you took a look at. What were some of the things that you found there that um, I guess also uh, speak to some of the limitations and challenges of informality and uh, the prospects of self-employment there, but also where some of our old thinking, as you say, uh, probably maybe obscures some of the opportunities and the possibilities? Yeah, I mean, look, Delft, Delft is a unique situation, but it, it, I guess there's probably similar places to it in other, other cities as well, in that, that we're seeing rapid densification of residential settlements. And people who own property in Delft um, are making big investments in those properties in order to create rental properties for others to stay on, on their, in their land or on the, in, in their house or next to their house. And, and what we're seeing in Delft is like small blocks of flats that are being built. And those blocks of flats that are being, are being built despite the legal and the regulatory framework, and which in itself is problematic in terms of like the rates, in terms of the access to water and the utilities, um, and also in, in terms of you know, potentially the safety of those buildings, because there's no real standard that seems to be applied um, in, in many contexts. That said, um, 
if we continue to lock townships into a kind of a zoning pattern and a structural pattern that doesn't allow them to do those kinds of developments, we're locking people out of the economy. And I think that what Delft was very striking about was, was people taking their life matters and their economic future into their own hands and coming up with ways to be able to generate income for themselves that were not necessarily legal, but are not necessarily criminal either. And I think these are strategies that we see people doing in the suburbs all the time, renting out their former domestic workers' quarters to students who pay rent, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you know, we're seeing the behaviours that you see in the suburbs happening in the township in a far more difficult and, and harder-to-make kind of income context. And I think that we, we're missing a beat here. And this is the challenge for local governments, is to, is to wake up and see what's going on around them and to embrace the opportunities that the economy is driving on its own. These are decisions that are being made because people are seeing opportunities and, and they're, they're going for them. And once again, you know, in the right context and with the right kind of legal frameworks and with the right approaches, these could be very, very good for growing our economy. And they could be the kind of entrepreneurial activities that we could be encouraging more of. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from from a bylaw perspective, uh, you know, I guess the, the there's another dynamic, which is from a building perspective, and even uh, if you think about food so, uh, food safety and health, uh, in the case of the food services industry, uh, there's a few sort of building blocks that I guess are needed um, in order for many of these entities to take, uh, I guess, uh, to take some some of the opportunities that are on offer not only in the informal sense, but also in uh, some of the more formal sector markets, spaces and value chains that you were referring to earlier? Yes, there are. Um, and I think that we do have a challenge in that there are many businesses where there are real issues around being able to meet the basic criteria. And the, comp- the, the, the resolution for that is not just about punishing businesses that do not conform. It's also about encouragement and bringing businesses on board. And you need to have a combination of carrot and stick. And, you, you know, it, it's, it's not about punitive measures for every business that doesn't get it right. But you need to also demonstrate to businesses that what's in it for them if you want them to formalize. Why would they change what it is they're doing right now um, so that, that that would make you happy? What is in it for them? And, 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 and I think this is the issue. If, if you're operating a township street trading business off the side of the road selling, you know, fried chicken pieces, but you have no rubbish service, you've got no access to water, no access to electricity, your only engagement with the state will be negative. And it will be law enforcement, and it's going to be health Mm. inspectors, and it's going to be everything that basically stands in the way of you wanting to formalise. Now, if the state could meet these traders halfway, start providing the kinds of infrastructure and opportunities and space and electricity and water that these businesses could use, you might start finding that businesses will embrace the opportunity to lift their standards and become more formalized. And that's how you're going to bring these businesses into the fold. Of course, there are some that are always going to choose to break the law. And in that case, you then need a punitive measure. But for many businesses, if the conditions are made are improved, and if our municipalities could deliver services more effectively within the township economy, we would see them embracing the opportunities that presents. And I think that that's, that's where we're really missing something here. There's a kind of all or nothing, there's formal or informal. Sure, and I think sure. that what we need to look at is a graduated approach to bring these businesses into the fold. But what do you make of some of the approaches that have developed now in the context of COVID-19? I mean, I think here in the province of Gauteng, where, you know, the city of Joburg has started a process, it might not be, you know, it might not fit neatly into the CIPC, 
understanding of what formalization might look like, but the fact that you would sort of have some recognition and uh, have some permit issued by a municipality, surely that gives some modicum of formality uh, and should allow many of these traders to access those services that are needed to undertake their work. Um, you know, that might be water, it might be the shelter they need to, to operate, it, it might even be, you know, uh, sort of basic things that they need for day-to-day -day operation uh, of their micro-enterprises. Sure, and, and here's hoping that these are the kinds of initiatives that can make a difference. I think what, what's important about the various initiatives that have, that have evolved out of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, the, the, there, there seems to be, at least in theory, a government embracing a slightly more experimental approach, a slightly braver approach, which maybe breaks some of the traditional thinking, and that's exactly what's going to be required if we want to like, bring these businesses into the fold. And, and it, it's the idea that, that, that we're going to take risks, that, that we're going to make mistakes, that things are going, not necessarily always going to work out the way we want, but at the same time that we can challenge our own thinking as people who come from the formal sector and come from a formal framework of kind of thinking, that we can challenge our own perceptions and we can maybe engage with informal businesses in different ways to see how we can find mutual ways to be able to take this forward. I mean, all the rules, all of the, 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 um, the bylaws, everything that we experience within the township economy have been dictated to the township by effectively like kind of a Eurocentric logic, which is what our town planning and what our rules-based system seems to be based on. Now, we need to look at that and say, well, you know, are we a European country? Because if we are, okay, we're not getting it right. And maybe what we need to be thinking about is that we're not a European country and we need to come up with a model that is more appropriate for the businesses and the people who live and operate mm. in this context. Where they are and uh, with what they currently have. And uh, 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 Leif, we're going to have to leave it there. And pleasure catching up with you. Uh, Leif Peterson is a director at the Sustainable Livelihoods Foundation. They're based out in the Western Cape. And as I said earlier, I really encourage you to go and check out their website. I've got some interesting uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting uh, uh, case studies there, uh, uh, not only just from South Africa, but also saw one there from uh, Namibia as well, which I found quite interesting. So do go check them out there. And uh, Leif, thank you very much for your time. As always, a pleasure.